This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. Of course you want to connect with someone who is excited and passionate about the same things that you are. But when it comes to your life, for better or worse, that is all you. And I am not shirking responsibility or turning down what is an extraordinary and really over-the-top compliment. America WK, Saturdays, 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Delighted to have you along where I, your radio rabbi, reminds you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is an aspect of human nature that uh, works reliably, whether the individual under our microscope is a Madison Avenue advertising executive, a Silicon Valley tech billionaire, or whether he is a Kalahari desert bushman living in Namibia, or whether he is a tribesman living in the uh, Amazon Delta, it doesn't really matter. Something that is built into all human beings is a negative tendency to love things or prefer things that are remote from us and to find it difficult to love those things closest to us. This is a, an aspect of human nature that we are called upon by our Creator uh, to resist and avoid. For instance, um, it's far, far easier to admire another man's wife than one's own. It is far, far easier, and uh, you'll probably remember this from when you were a kid, it's far easier to think well of your friend's parents than of your own. And yes, it is far easier to feel warmly about some other country than one's own. This is a reality. It's built into us, and there is value in, in knowing about it, right? Forewarned is forearmed. And so if you're in a child-raising stage of your life, then you need to know that your children have an inbuilt tendency uh, to, to be irritated by you and to regard you as unreasonable, whereas almost everyone else they know of is reasonable and easy to get along with. It's just family. It's their siblings, it's their parents, even, even their grandparents, although to a lesser extent. But uh, that is something that's built into us, and it takes a certain amount of character strength, it takes a certain amount of goodness to resist that, to resist that tendency, and to love those closest to us more than we love those farthest away. And uh, helping us understand that is really a very valuable function of ancient Jewish wisdom. Because 
it enables us to now analyze something which really has to be one of the most profound mysteries of, of, of current times. And that is, why does the world hate Israel? What's that about? Why? I mean, what has Israel done? Occupied the Palestinians? Well, <laughs> actually, what they really are trying to do is survive. And uh, if, the, uh, if the Arabs, the Muslims, would only totally grant Israel's right to exist, which they've never done. And the most remarkable thing is that the United Nations has not required it. American successive State Departments have not required it. All they do is constantly cut further slack to the Muslim world, saying, well, you know, let's not work on the details now. Let's just talk about the broad picture. Well, I would have thought the broad picture includes a right to exist, you would think. After all, think about for a moment the, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? Excepting in Hebrew, they're not called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Statements. Why is that? Well, actually, they're not even really called the Ten Statements because throughout the Torah, throughout the uh, five books of Moses, they are referred to as the Ten Commandments only four times. But they are referred to as the two tablets over 30 times. And so clearly, the two-ness factor is more important than the ten-ness aspect of it, if you, if you know what I mean. It's more important that there's two things that wrap up the Ten Commandments than, the, than, than that there are ten. And that uh, is to say that... Um, if you think about it for a second, you know, Moses is up there, and uh, how old is he at this point where he's on top of Mount Sinai getting the, uh, the tablets? Eighty years old. And so, you know, God says, okay, write down, I'm the Lord, you're okay, write down, okay, now we get down to honor your father and mother. Okay, Moses chipping away there in the stone block, and uh, God says, okay, now uh, take another block, and uh, we can, we'll carry on. Moses says, Lord, I've got a better idea. Why don't we just reduce the font size and uh, get them all on one tablet? Or tell you, why don't I turn the tablet around and do the, the rest of them on the other side? But I'm 80 years old. I had enough trouble getting up the mountain. I've got to get down still with two tablets in my arms. Do me a favor. Give me a break. Cut me some slack. <laughs> and uh, the Lord says, no, just take another tablet of stone. We'll, we'll figure out a way to get you down the mountain. And... Uh, it has to be on two tablets. Why? Well, because there's a parallelism between tablet one and tablet two. There's a parallelism between commandment one and commandment six, commandment two and seven, three and eight, four and nine, and five and ten. And the difference is that the first tablet is a sort of vertical relationship. It's the five principles of relating to God. The second tablet are the same five principles, but they're applied to relating to our fellow man. And what is the very first? Let's look at the, the second, or the, at least the first one. I'm the Lord your God. Look, if you can't deal with that, <laughs> there's no point in going any further. You absolutely are not going to have a relationship with a God whose existence you, you can't deal with. How about the uh, sixth commandment, the first one on the second tablet? Thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, Okay. what that means is that uh, if 
we're going to study the five principles of connecting with other human beings, then it's pretty basic that the first one has to be that I have a right to exist. If you don't acknowledge my right to exist, there's nothing at all to talk about. Absolutely not. If your view is that as soon as I irritate you, as soon as I annoy you, as soon as I anger you, you will kill me, then we don't have a conversation. There's nothing there. It's simply, there's nowhere to go from this point. And that is very, uh, very basic. It's only after we've established that that we can go on and talk about the uniqueness of the relationship. All right? Each and every relationship must be unique. I don't want to feel that you're commoditizing the communication. Um, I, uh, I, if I'm going to meet uh, a person, a professional salesperson, and he addresses me or, or sells to me in exactly the same manner in which he did the last person and the way he will the next person, I'll pick up on that. You would too. And you'll realize that uh, he is violating the second commandment of relationships, which is no adultery. Each one has to be unique. You cannot relate to this woman exactly the same as you relate to this other woman to whom you're married. And we speak of adultery in that relationship, but it has applications in all relationships. Don't adulterate any relationship. Make every relationship unique. But wait a second. No point in even talking about any of this if we don't, first of all, acknowledge that there is a right to exist. And uh, that is something that Israel's neighbors vehemently have resisted conceding. It simply is not acceptable. And so... um, Everything else pretty much flows from there. There is almost nothing a war-weary nation of Israel wouldn't do in order to have peace. But uh, it does seem as if, as if Israel's obliteration is non-negotiable. And if that is the case, then Israel has an existential threat uh, facing it, and it has a, a fundamental obligation uh, to protect its citizens, because as we've covered uh, last uh, in last week, episode number 15, uh, the uh, relationship that any government has with its own people has to be different and more sacred than the relationship it has with the citizens of another state. And Israel takes its responsibilities to, to do what it can to keep its citizens alive and safe uh, very, very seriously. And so uh, you cannot say that the, uh, the implacable hatred that the rest of the world beams at Israel is because of what Israel does to the Palestinians. It, it, it cannot be, because Israel would be perfectly happy to stop that and to uh, do almost anything in exchange for one simple thing, which is we have a right to exist, we will be here, now let's talk about how. That's all that the Arab world has to come back to Israel with, and everything is fine. And so you would think that um, at least, at the very least, the uh, newspapers of London, Paris, New York, and Los Angeles should be at least balanced or neutral on the subject, but they're not. The, the hatred is palpable. 
what is this really all about? And uh, when we come back, we'll, let's start off by calling a spade a spade, shall we? Tell you about it in just a moment. Don't go away. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. They are aiding and abetting illegals. The Congress is saying, if you don't help federal immigration authorities from now on, we're going to withhold funds. And the president says, no, I stand. The president is firmly putting his foot down on no. I stand with illegality, with the violation of U.S. federal law. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, yes, as I said, we are going to talk about calling a spade a spade. Uh, This is episode 16 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. That's right. This is the 16th podcast in the series. And uh, I do hope you get a chance to, to hear the earlier ones because... Uh, while each is a standalone, at the same time, uh, they do build upon one another in, in, a, in, a, in a way that I've been careful to construct. And so uh, moving along with the second segment of this 16th podcast, uh, I said we need to call a spade a spade. Now, look, not everybody calls a spade a spade. Uh, there are some people who will call a spade a one-person-operated a manually controlled, uh, foot-powered implement (laughs) of, uh, shall we say, simple but robust, uh, yet adequately efficacious, uh, lignometallic composition designated primarily, uh, though by no means exclusively, for utilization by hourly paid operatives deployed in the agricultural, horticultural, constructional, trades or industries, as the case may be, for purposes of carrying out such excavational tasks and duties as may from time to time be designated by supervisory grades. Now, that's the way a government bureaucrat would call a spade. That's how he would say a spade, well, he'd say what a spade was. That's right. But we're going to call a spade a spade. We're going to be very, very direct and very specific. And uh, that means, obviously, that we do have to look at the possibility of flagrant bigotry in the form of anti-Semitism, explaining why there is so much widespread hostility towards Israel. When you think about it, my goodness, it's... uh, It's been war after war after war, always started by the Arabs. And, uh, you know, Israel is in this incredible crisis. The Arab states can lose war after war after war, and they have lost war after war after war, and it makes no difference. All that happens is they insist on getting the land back. Like, when? (laughs) When do the losers ever get back what they lost? Well, if you lose to Israel, then you're lucky you get it back. It's bizarre. But you see, Israel cannot afford to lose even one war because that would be the end. Something that uh, any uh, reasonable and balanced observer 
the Middle East knows is that if the Arabs were to put down their weapons, there would be a grand and glorious peace in the Middle East. There would be economic growth. There would be advances. There would be human happiness and tranquility that would enhance the quality of the lives of a hundred million people of the region plus. I'm talking about the uh, contiguous states to Israel. Uh, but if Israel would unilaterally put out its arms, what would happen then? I think you all know there'd be a genocide. The Arabs would fulfill precisely what they've been promising for decades. And so we do have to take a look and see, is it really anti-Semitism? Well, actually, we have to start with something else entirely, my friends. And that is that there is a titanic struggle between barbarism and civilization. This is nothing new. This has been going on from the dawn of human history, but it is something that is very real. There is a struggle for civilization against the dark forces of barbarism. Now, what is civilization? I struggle sometimes to help you understand that there are not hundreds of civilizations on the planet. There are hundreds of cultures, but only one civilization. When you think about what a civilization means, when you think about a civilization that makes it possible for people to live in tranquility, to follow their interests, to better themselves, to make sure that even the weakest among them have an ability to function and to live, to make sure that women are, are treated as they should be, to make certain that issues are solved by voting, not by violence, by ballots, not by bullets, to make sure that hygiene is, is part of, of the civic order, to make sure that, uh, that uh, art and beauty and aesthetic plays a role. My friends, there's not a lot of civilizations in the world. The notion that the ancient Aztecs had a civilization is just not true. The notion that uh, the Zulus had a civilization is simply not true. Now, there were many wonderful and excellent things about the Zulus, and they still are. But uh, a civilization was not it. There really is only one civilization, and uh, that is the biblical ideal come closest to by the American founding, uh, by ancient Israel at its best, and by the emergence of uh, Western civilization in Europe. That is civilization. Civilization is not found innately in Bangladesh, but it is found in Canada. There is a very big difference between Australia and, um, and uh, shall we say, the Sudan. A very big difference. And the difference is that the values of the West have produced civilization. 
those values are derived directly from the Bible. And so from the very earliest days, from the beginning of civilization, when the Bible first made its appearance on the planet and introduced this notion that male sexuality has to be channeled into marriage, that's the way that civilization evolves and develops. And, uh, and when the Bible established that uh, the rich and powerful cannot take from the poor and the weak, and the Bible established these revolutionary ideas that had not been seen on the planet before. And by the way, please don't make the mistake of thinking these same ideas appear in Hammurabi's code. They don't. The idea of a morality underpinning a civilization is unique to the biblical vision of human social organization and the Western civilization that that generated. And uh, this struggle is a struggle between the dark satanic forces of barbarism and the, uh, the forces of civilization and the, the dreams and vision of civilization. When uh, Thomas Jefferson sent uh, Decatur in, uh, over to uh, Tripoli and to the Barbary Coast, North Africa, Morocco, Libya, Algeria, went back there uh, and stopped them from kidnapping and torturing and, and stealing ships that were traveling uh, through the uh, Straits of Gibraltar and through the Mediterranean, uh, that was a struggle between civilization and barbarism. It was. And there have been many other similar struggles and many examples. There have been many battlefields where the struggle exists between civilization and barbarism. Now, one of the, uh, one of the peeves of barbarism is that civilization is evil because it is colonial and it colonized. Well, I have to tell you something rather controversial, and I'm quite certain that your initial uh, reaction will be to say, oh, come on, now you're going a bit too far, Lappin, impossible. Uh, or you might choose to reject it out of hand. But I would urge you to at least be open to the notion and to then explore it at your leisure and discover that in actuality, what I'm telling you is absolutely true, and that is that the colonization of the third world by the European powers was to the benefit of the third world. The notion that Western powers came to colonial areas in Africa and in Asia and uh, in South America and in North America, and they impoverished them and carted off their wealth back. Um, yeah, it's Spain in, uh, in the case of South America with Cortes. Yes, they did do that. But uh, in terms of what the British did in Africa and what the British did in, in India, I can tell you that uh, having motorcycled through a good part of Africa, um, soon after the British had pulled out, well, no, a few years after the British had pulled out, I can't tell you how many people I ran into uh, who longed for the return of the British. And I'm not saying that that's the proof. You know, my few anecdotal accounts, it's not that. 
It's that, <clears throat> it's that life for the overwhelming majority of ordinary people in Africa was far, far better under the British than it is now. In what sort of way do I mean? Well, first of all, uh, the, um, uh, the, the corruption among the leaders, that wasn't there when the British were there. Uh, the violence, the British kept the Muslims under control. Ghana, under British rule, functioned very well. Today, to this day, ruling families, the wealthiest families in Ghana, are those who are headed by people who went to British schools in Ghana. There aren't any schools like that anymore. The post office used to work. The railways used to work. Things were maintained properly. Britain had a civil service that they brought there. And here's the great thing. There have been some very important studies that, um, and you know, everyone kept meticulous records, whether it was the Dutch East India Company or whether it was the British Trading Companies or the Hudson Bay Company. They kept meticulous records, and now, by means of computer analysis, um, it's been possible to go back and explore and discover that, in actuality, wealth was brought to the colonies, not taken away from them. The fact that the British were there brought wealth. And one of the best proofs of that is that um, <laughs> when the British left, the standard of living of everybody plummeted. I think that sort of kind of tells you what happened, doesn't it? But um, we're not done yet. Don't go away. Your radio rabbi, that's me, back in a moment. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Jay Severin. Remember that our only theory on Joe Biden and what he would do until this morning was Biden will do what Obama tells him to do. Biden, therefore, is a barometer of Hillary's legal fate. Well, who knows in advance what her legal fate is? Obama does. That's who. Don't you believe that? Do you? Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. We are in the uh, third segment of the f 16th uh, podcast where I, your rabbi, am focused on replacing all of life's perplexing predicaments and puzzling paradoxes with life's permanent principles. And uh, one of them is that we have to be honest. We have to look at things as they really are. We must call a spade a spade rather than a one-person-operated, manually-controlled, foot-powered, etc., etc. No, let's call a spade a spade. And part of calling a spade a spade is that the colonial period when the uh, British were in Africa, uh, that was a good time for the overwhelming majority of citizens. It was a good time. Uh, life was predictable, and everybody wants life to be predictable. Nobody wants to lay their heads down at night without knowing whether or not they'll be alive in the morning. And to this day, in large parts of Africa, that is the case. The condition of ordinary people, for the most part, has deteriorated in the years that the British have left. It hasn't improved. 
Now, there have been areas, obviously, of, of development. There have also been ups and downs. There have been areas where there have been explosions of Christianity with uh, predictably positive results. Uh, there have also been areas relatively recently uh, where the Chinese have, have basically replaced the British. And uh, while they haven't restored um, colonies in name, uh, in actuality, that's exactly what they're doing. And, uh, and again, they're doing it with the full consent, cooperation um, of Africans who quite rightly recognize that the Chinese bring uh, an ability to uh, organize social structures in such a way that everybody seems to, to have a better life. Uh, nobody's protesting the, the, the Chinese, and the only people who are protesting the British were the people who themselves intended, pardon me. And so uh, what I, I'm trying to lay out for you is that um, the people who opposed uh, British colonial rule, the people who did their best uh, and finally succeeded in banishing the British, whether this was in Africa or in India, uh, were people whose main plan was uh, to become tyrants. It was mainly people who saw an opportunity of self-aggrandizement, um, talking in grandiose terms of freedom and independence and how wonderful this will be for everybody. Uh, and in reality, of course, uh, it was really mainly wonderful for them. And... Um, and the, the, the poor dupes, the ordinary citizens who listened to the seductive uh, language of revolution and uh, freedom and independence, uh, they didn't do so well, not, not so well at all. And, uh, and that, of course, is a story as old as humanity. But um, among the, the people, among the people who... Uh, um, who drove out the British from Kenya. I'm talking specifically about Kenya right now, although the principle applies um, almost everywhere. Um, were a, uh, uh, you may have heard of the Mau Mau marauders. Uh, basically, these were terrorists at the time um, who, um, who, who spared nobody, black skin or white skin, in their determination to oust the British and uh, become the rulers. As long as the British were there, uh, they didn't allow the rise of, uh, of um, bandits and, uh, and gang leaders and, uh, and tyrants. They just they didn't do it. They wouldn't allow it. And for that very reason, the people who had aspirations in those directions obviously were very eager to get rid of the British. Now, look, believe me, I understand. This is a picture of the colonial period that uh, you haven't heard, I guess, most likely. And if you have, that's wonderful. Then you are a very well-read, erudite, balanced individual. But uh, most people are shocked and uh, sometimes even bothered and dismayed uh, when I explain uh, this slightly different perspective on the colonial period. Anyways, the reason I uh, explained all of this is so that you understand that um, what those who, um, who advocate and prefer barbarism to civilization argue is, well, that civilization 
brought the evils of colonialism. And uh, one of the one of the individuals who um, who was sort of part of this whole pattern was the uh, the father of uh, a United States president. The father uh, was a, a Kenyan who uh, deeply hated the British and everything that they stood for. And uh, the, the, the general distaste for Western civilization uh, was carried forward to, to his son, who was elected uh, president of the United States of America. And um, what he managed to do was to uh, allow his views to infiltrate downwards through all of American society, particularly the parts of American society susceptible to a, uh, a left-leaning vision. And so it was the universities that became more hostile to Western civilization during this period of, uh, uh, of the, this um, specific administration of uh, this period of American history, uh, more hostile to, uh, to Western civilization than um, at almost any other time in the entire history of the United States of America. Um, and uh, this then uh, translated into um, basically a... Uh, an, ad, an embrace, an advocacy of barbarism in all its forms. Now, what is the appeal? What is the appeal of barbarism, you might ask? Well, here's one aspect of barbarism. I, I alluded to it briefly a little bit earlier, which is that uh, one of the revolutionary changes that was brought about by the arrival of the Bible uh, about 3,300 years ago, is the, uh, the, the transformation of a sexual free-for-all into a structured society where sex was the glue for the human family, for the marital unit. Now, this was very revolutionary and, uh, and needless to say, also very disturbing. I mean, just imagine, if you would, if you could think, think back to um, to your uh, young adult years, and um, and if if you were a male, this will probably be a little bit easier to imagine. But uh, it it doesn't press the imaginative capacities of either gender. Uh, and think back, and and you may or you may not have been part of the sexual revolution, but I ask you to put yourself in the position of a young man in the, uh, the very uh, glory days of the sexual revolution. You'll remember back then there were no sexually transmitted diseases and there was, there were, homosexuality hadn't yet taken hold and there wasn't AIDS and there wasn't um, uh, sexual harassment charges. And that, just think back to that period when and it really is is the only period, and it was a short period in, in all of American history, uh, a short period where it was, um, I, I don't want to say it was a glorious time to be a male because it wasn't really at all, but it certainly would have felt that way. 
And, uh, you know, the 60s and the 70s, uh, probably sort of the, 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 the time frame I'm talking about. And I, I, I ask you to put yourself in the position of a young man at that point who, who um, is, you know, in his early 20s, and he is discovering um, that sex is unlimited. Literally, the only limitation are his own abilities. And within the, uh, the, within the framework of his own physical ability, the opportunity for sexual variety and availability was limitless. Now, all of a sudden, in walks a boss who says, uh, that's it, all over. No more of this until you get married and commit yourself for the rest of your life to one woman. How do you think that individual feels? I know how I'd feel. <laughs> so this, my friends, is a little glimpse into the appeal of barbarism. And it's only one part of it. The sexual area is only one part of it. But it is a very important part of it. And um, it, uh, it, if one thing leads to another, as I'm going to explain as we move forward in today's podcast. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Uh, please do visit my website. And uh, one of your ways of supporting this podcast is by finding something you want to buy in my store. So go to rabbidaniellapin.com, R-A-B-B-I, Daniel, L-A-P-I-N, rabbidaniellapin.com, and visit the store. And uh, you will find... Uh, both books, audio CDs, and video DVDs, uh, in which I elaborate far more deeply on many of the topics that we touch on um, during the podcast, and uh, find something there that, that works for you, something that, that you might need. That is a, a very effective way of us both benefiting. You arriving at uh, the ability to obtain some valuable information, and I get the uh, payment that you supply for that enables us to help keep everything moving along here. A quick break, and uh, we'll be right back to see how this explains why the world hates Israel. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Matt Walsh. Carly Fiorina performed well. In the debate, her closing statement was compelling. Her answer on Planned Parenthood was was stirring. Her comeback to Donald Trump's comment about her face was smart. She made Donald Trump look like an imbecile, but of course that's not a difficult thing to do. She had good answers on things. I'm still very hesitant about her track record ideologically and because of her business track record. Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. And uh, this is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I remind you as we're trying to understand why the world hates Israel. And the, the key thing is to recognize that uh, the struggle between Israel and those who hate her and wish to deny her very existence is essentially a struggle between civilization and barbarism. Now, 
it's very difficult to fully grasp the depths of evil inherent in a barbaric vision of humanity. Uh, those of us who are uh, spiritually grounded in, in everything that is life-affirming find it difficult to even comprehend fully those who promote an infinitely satanic abyss. And, uh, and, and after all, when, when we think about it, that's really what we're grappling with, is it not? Think about this. After all, it's been a war between Islam and Judeo-Christian culture. Um, this, this battle between the culture of the Quran and the twin civilizations of the Bible, Judaism and Christianity, um, look, I mean, it's just been ongoing since Charles Martel stopped the Islamic advance into France in 732, I think that was, uh, to the capture, the Ottoman capture of Constantinople in 1453, uh, ultimately to the destruction of the Ottoman naval fleet in the naval battle of Lepanto in 1571, uh, to when Christian knights kept the Muslims out of Vienna in 1683. And by the way, that would be September 11, 1683, for which revenge was wreaked on September the 11th, 2001, uh, all the way to when Stephen, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, put down the Barbary pirates in 1804, uh, to when Major Nidal Malik Hassan, killed 13 soldiers on America's largest military base in Fort Hood, Texas, on November 5th, 2009. Uh, this is a lengthy battle. And it's not only between Islam and uh, the cultures of the Bible, uh, because it even predates Islam. And look, uh, those... You know, the, the question is, so why are so many people in the West drawn to the culture of barbarism? Why do they find themselves attracted to it? Why is it that even an American administration finds itself almost intuitively hostile to countries that stand for civilization and uh, friendly, if not downright accommodating, uh, to those who are barbaric. And again, I urge you to think back to high school. And you'll remember the, the bad guys in high school, right? Wh whatever, the, whatever they were in your particular high school, leather jackets and motorcycles, if you go back a while, or whoever it is, you know, the bad guys. And which girls were attracted to them? Almost invariably, the girls from the good sides of the track invariably girls from upper-middle-class backgrounds. They were titillated, they were uh, attracted, even seduced. Um, they, they found it exciting. But for the most part, girls who came from those same backgrounds as the so-called bad guys, they were not drawn to it. They wanted to do everything they could uh, to get onto the good side of the tracks. They wanted to escape that background and culture. You see... Uh, barbarism exerts a certain fascination on the uh, on those who had the enormous advantages in life of uh, of 
growing up and living their lives under circumstances of great civilization. As I tried to explain a little bit earlier, uh, we are all tempted to uh, find good and favor in the distant. The, the more remote it is, the, the more alien it is to us, uh, the more attractive we find it. And, and that's something that, that we're, as I said, we're called upon to try and overcome within ourselves. Uh, it's, it's an unhealthy and negative tendency that uh, we grow by learning to fight and ultimately to defeat uh, the tendency to uh, dislike or even hate that which is close to us and love that which is far and away and remote. And there's no better example of that than the way in which uh, the more, the, the, the more uh, luxurious, the more comfortable, uh, the more pampered and spoiled that people are, the more they find themselves drawn to the bad boy, the more they find themselves drawn to barbarism. And, uh, and part of it is, as I said in the, in the last segment, Part of it is that barbarism uh, always radiates an untrammeled sexuality. And so the, the barbarism of the rock and roll culture that shocked middle America uh, when Woodstock happened in a, in a field upstate New York, um, and, and it was the pictures of their sons and daughters that bothered middle America. There were their sons and daughters rolling in the mud, uh, cavorting half naked, and, and clearly uh, engaged in, in, in the kind of uh, sexual freedom that, uh, that, that their parents could barely imagine if, if dream of. And that barbarism uh, exerted enormous fascination on young people all around the country. Part of the appeal of rock and roll is a barbaric appeal in the sense that one of the main differences between classical symphonic music, shall we say, of Johann Sebastian Bach um, and the, uh, the rock music of the 60s and 70s and beyond uh, is the beat. Uh, the beat with classical symphonic music is sophisticated. Um, it's, you have to listen for a while to be able to grasp it. But the beat of rock and roll is always primitive. It's always essentially the primal rhythm of sex emanating from that song, that, that steady bass beat. Um, it's, it, it, it just resonates within the human mind. We all know what it is. And that is part of this appeal of barbarism. Another part of it is, that, look, um, life is best when it is predictable. Anybody with any maturity understands that. Everybody understands that driving in Brazil um, is barbaric, and it's very exciting because every time you get in your car to drive, you don't know if you're going to come home. And if you do, it's very exhilarating because the truck that went barreling through a red light, narrowly missing your cab, um, well... It, it leaves you feeling exhilarated. It's, um, it's, it's the real-life equivalent of horror movies. Why do people go to horror movies? To feel the exhilaration of the contrast. I'm alive. I'm actually here. I'm fine. It's the relief of waking up from a nightmare. And, 
And, and so mature people understand that living a life of predictability is a great blessing, knowing you are going to wake up tomorrow, knowing that the money is not going to devalue overnight and your life savings are going to be rendered valueless, uh, knowing that uh, roving gangs of bandits um, are not going to, uh, to threaten you or your possessions or your family. Uh, these things are good. But at the same time, I think uh, there's enough in each of us to still remember and to still recognize and to still feel a certain attraction that comes from wildness and unpredictability and anything could happen. Um, most people sort of get over that in their teenage and early 20 years. Um, some people get over it a lot earlier. Uh, but there are people who retain that there is a certain excitement wrapped up in the primitive, wrapped up in the barbaric, and uh, that is what makes um, people who've never actually had to face violence, people who've never really had to face death threats, people who've never really had to confront their mortality, um, for them, the, the real-life equivalent of a horror movie is embracing barbarism. Uh, they don't do it themselves. They don't want their children to do it. I can assure you that uh, uh, the president of the United States of America certainly does not want his own daughters to embrace the values that he embraces in his foreign policy. Of course he wouldn't want that. But there's something exciting. There's something liberating. There's something that makes you feel brave and avant-garde, cutting edge, when you embrace barbarism. And uh, that struggle between Israel and its critics going on right now, a struggle um, that, that could end overnight if the Arabs simply said, yeah, fine, you know what, let's work out an equitable arrangement, peace, and we'll be different nations living in the Middle East, and we'll try and turn the Middle East into the Switzerland of the Mediterranean. And sure enough, they would. But you see, that's not how barbarism works. Those are not the values of barbarism. Uh, there is a certain bloodlust in barbarism, and, uh, and we, we see that going on. So why the world hates Israel? Well, it's, uh, it's a hatred for civilization in the face of barbarism. Uh, it is rationalized by uh, arguing that Israel is a colonial power of white Europeans that have taken away the land of the, uh, of the, um, of the people who live there. Uh, and the, the West joins in. So what I'm mostly focused on in this discussion is not why Arabs hate Israel, but why uh, the intellectual elite on the manicured lawns of American universities, um, in the fashionable salons of European capitals. Um, why do those people hate Israel? And the, the answer is that these are people who are attracted to the bad boy of the world. They're attracted. They feel themselves experiencing life to the full when they... Uh, perform an intellectual and emotional embrace of barbarism. 
uh, they feel that they really are doing something exciting and wonderful and their lives feel a bit more exciting and the blood flows with just a teensy bit more passion through their uh, their, their veins and uh, the 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 pallid skins get a little bit more of a flush of passion as they vicariously enjoy the beheadings of the Middle East and the uh, blood flowing because it doesn't affect them. And that is exactly uh, what is going on there. I know it's a, I know it's a, tough, it's a tough mouthful to swallow. I, I do know that. But, um, but at least that is something that makes some sense of an otherwise bizarre phenomenon going on in the world today. A um, quick break, and uh, when we come back, uh, you're not going to believe the solution to uh, the problem of income inequality. That's right. A minimum wage is oppressive. There is a better solution. Everybody should get money. Well, let me not give it away. We'll be coming right back. Hold on. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. You're an honorary agent. According to a lot of fans, I am an honorary agent. I've actually received that a lot of times. I, I don't know have why. Really? I guess I have some Asian. You do. You have that one. I don't know. Is that good or bad? Thank you. No. Well, anything that makes you non-white is <laughs> good, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I'm, right? That's why. Right. Yes. It's, I, a, it's a high compliment. Thank I would you. not say Thank you're you, white Jeff. ever again. Thank yeah. you, Jeffrey. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, everybody, in podcast number 16. And uh, again, I thank you for being part of the podcast. And uh, particularly, I thank those of you who have taken the trouble to write to me. I really appreciate that and uh, do my best to respond, as many of you have discovered. Uh, please go to my website at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, R-A-B-B-I, that's two Bs, and then rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, watch out for the two Ls, one at the end of Daniel and another one at the end of Lappin, L-A-P-I-N. Uh, sometimes people leave out one of those L's, and it doesn't work. As a matter of fact, I've seriously considered changing my name from Daniel to Ferdinand, uh, because Rabbi Ferdinand Lappin will be D-L-A-P-I-N rather than uh, L-L-A-P-I-N. So, uh, uh, so really make it easy, and I know a lot of you would appreciate that, but... Uh, when I have some spare time, I will look more seriously into that. But for the meanwhile, it's rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there's a Contact Us tab, which enables you to shoot me an email, which I'd really appreciate that. And uh, there's also a Store tab, where you can take a look at some of the resources that we've created for you. Uh, for those of you who want to delve more deeply into any of these topics, particularly in the area of financial abundance, so uh, take a look at that, and uh, you will be able to uh, get a hold of, of some of the principles that have worked so well for the Jewish people and in terms of, of building a, a relationship uh, with wealth that is positive, not just for them, but uh, for all those around them as well. And I now want to look at the ways in which people can be so easily misled. Uh, a little earlier in, in this particular show, 
Uh, I gave you an example of what a government bureaucrat might call a spade. Uh, what might a government bureaucrat call a lie? Just a straightforward lie. Uh, when I say the word lie, you know what I mean. I know what I mean. But what does a government bureaucrat understand by the word lie? If I said to him, you know, what, what's a lie? I think he might say something like this. <coughs> well, in, uh, in as much as the precise correlation between the information communicated and the facts, insofar as they can be determined and demonstrated, is such as to cause epistemological problems of sufficient magnitude as to lay upon the logical and semantic resources of the English language a heavier burden than that can be reasonably be expected to bear. Yeah, now that's, I think that's a bureaucratic definition of a lie. And by the time you get to the end of it, nobody's got the faintest idea of what you're talking about. People just want to escape, get away. And the, the awkward line of questioning can then be ignored. Um, well, I want to tell you, I want to show you a few examples of ways in which the culture is being corrupted. And uh, I'm not going to go to obscure websites or journals written by cranks for creeps. No, I'm going to look at something as central to the elite core of the culture as the Washington Post. Now, now there's actually a very good newspaper published in Washington called the Washington Times. But it doesn't have a fraction of the influence of the Washington Post. And so here is something that appeared recently in the Washington Post, published with, with the full strength of the Washington Post uh, behind it. You know, it's, it's, not as if, uh, it's not as if they then uh, ran an editorial saying, you know, we, we gave you this article on capitalism, but... You know, here's what's wrong with it. No, no balance at all. Here's what they say. And um, I want to read you parts, and I assure you that I just don't have the time in this podcast to read you the whole article, but the quotes that I'm reading are in no way out of context. Uh, please be aware that I am not in any way distorting the intention of the writer. I'm not in any way... Uh, concealing or, uh, or, or uh, in, in any way uh, painting a picture different from what the author wants. So here it is. Um, it starts off with a sentence. Capitalism is a coercive economic system that creates persistent patterns of economic deprivation. Okay. You know, that is such an outrageous sentence. You'd think who on earth has the audacity to write that. I couldn't write anything like that without my face going red in embarrassment. Capitalism is a coercive economic system that creates persistent patterns of economic deprivation. All right, so, I mean, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to uh, stop now to, to tell you what's wrong with that, other than to say that, uh, that, that capitalism has lifted more people to a more desirable state of, of economic comfort than anything else in, in 2,000 years. 
And obviously, the poor of the world agree. Otherwise, there'd be more people trying to escape capitalistic countries than get in. But no capitalistic countries need to erect walls to keep people in. What they often need to do is to erect walls to keep people out. And so uh, it's, 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 it's breathtaking in its audacity. But uh, my point is just think how many people read that and say, oh, yeah, how many people read that unthinkingly and are thereby indoctrinated into this belief? But it gets much more serious. So again, capitalism is a coercive economic system that creates persistent patterns of economic deprivation. Governments have typically dealt with capitalism's more misery-inducing tendencies by creating institutions of labor protection, such as the right to organize unions, and by building out modern welfare states. Although these policy programs have been fairly successful, especially in the countries that have pushed them the furthest, they have not fully eliminated coercion and deprivation. To secure freedom and prosperity for all, it may ultimately be necessary to supplement the welfare state with a universal basic income, a program that will provide all citizens with a basic level of financial support regardless of whether they're employed. Got it? The only way to turn unowned natural resources such as land, minerals, and other goods into privately owned property is by violently preventing all others from using them. This one-sided exclusion destroys freedom of movement and cuts many people off from things they need to survive. I'm reading from the Washington Post, my friends, the newspaper that broke the Watergate story the newspaper that is the first thing that congressmen and senators read every morning. I'll carry on. When the physical resources necessary for production are privately held in the hands of very few, as in the United States, the majority of the population is forced to submit itself to well-financed employers in order to live. Then they go on to say uh, labor protection is all very well, but no amount of labor regulation can ever undo the fact that workers are confronted daily with the choice between obeying a supervisor or losing all their income. I mean, this is, isn't this breathtaking? In other words, they're indignant that you have to take orders from your boss at work. Otherwise, you, you run the risk of losing your job. The only, I'm continuing, the only way to break the coercion at the core of the employment relationship is to give people the genuine ability to say no to their employers. And the only way to make that feasible is to guarantee that working-age adults have some way to support themselves, whether they work or not. There it is. It's pretty amazing. Gosh. It finishes off by saying true freedom requires freedom from destitution and freedom from the demands of the employer. Capitalism ensures neither, but a universal basic income could provide both. That's the idea, a universal basic income. Not bad. Isn't it something? Think about what that means. The government will provide every citizen with a set amount of money on a regular basis. The cash income would be universal and unconditional. 
meaning that every citizen would receive it no matter what. No work requirements, no means testing, and no restrictions on how the money is used. Uh, this, uh, you know, you read this stuff in a paper like the Washington Post, for heaven's sake, and you think to yourself, this must be on the satire page or the funny page. Uh, but it isn't. And it is written by somebody whom I do not know, but I would have to assume somebody who has absolutely no idea of where money comes from, or even of the idea that uh, that government does not have any money that it hasn't taken from citizens. And so uh, it's the, the ignorance is absolutely abysmal. But it's even more than that. It's a fundamental failure to understand how the world really works. And uh, the way to refute and debunk something as, uh, as, as flawed as this um, is something I'll take a look at in just a moment when we get back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Anti-fragile. You get stronger. You're resilient. You go lift weights. When you go lift weights, you, you break your muscles down. And then they grow back stronger. So then you can lift more weights. And you lift more weights, and then you break your muscles down again, and then they grow back stronger and stronger and stronger. Clint Bruce is a man who clearly recognizes the importance of not being fragile, but not thinking that resilient is enough, and being anti-fragile, growing stronger through adversity. Mike Slater. Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. So what is this all about? Is it merely abysmal economic illiteracy? Is it nothing but breathtaking ignorance on the uh, arcane and challenging subject of economics? Or is there something else at work? After all, to suggest that everybody should receive a living sum of money, regardless of whether or not they work, in order to free them from the tyranny of employers, it almost sounds like the, the ramblings of a, a particularly d dim-witted middle schooler no, there's, there's something a little more than that going on. Welcome. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, you are well into episode 16 as we explore how the world really works, you see. And uh, earlier in the show, I was talking about the ongoing um, struggle between civilization and barbarism. And I just want to point out that when I say barbarism, it would be a mistake to conjure up in mind a vision of a loincloth, barefoot savage hurling a spear and carrying home the heads of his, of his enemies. Uh, no, a barbarism very often wears a far more uh, comfortable camouflage. For instance, uh, when I 
was recently in Boston for a speech. I took a walk through Cambridge and uh, through the square, and I realized as I watched young people, perhaps of one of the most privileged generations of Americans, uh, young people attending college at Harvard, I saw them sitting in the square banging on drums. And they seemed, by the uh, idyllic look on their faces, they appeared to be transported to some nirvana, some kind of paradise. And I realized that what's going on here is that the heirs, the spiritual and cultural heirs of Bach and Beethoven are banging bongo drums in Boston. They are recreating the sounds of the jungle within the shadow of one of the finest Western educational institutions in all of history. What's going on there? Well, as I've been speaking on this show, it is the seduction of barbarism. Um, in an earlier show, a few episodes ago, I spoke about modern art and the appeal of modern art. Well, again, we're looking at the appeal of barbarism. Barbarism is the abolition of all rules, structures, and discipline while retaining as many of the advantages as possible uh, that were originally made possible by those disciplines and, and rules and structures. And so when, uh, they, uh, when they speak in terms of universal uh, right to money, one of the basic rules about the language of rights is that every time you identify a right, you absolutely need to identify who is responsible for providing that right. I remember when uh, I was crossing the Pacific on our sailboat with my family. Our sailboat was called Paragon, and uh, around about, somewhere around about mid-Pacific, just through sheer exhaustion, I arrived at the incorrect conclusion that we had run out of water. It was, I was measuring inaccurately just through being tired. But at that point, I remember laughing to myself in the face of, of this nightmarish scenario where we were uh, 1,100 miles from Honolulu and 1,100 miles from California, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got my family on board, I've got a couple of friends on board, and I have allowed us to run out of water. And then I remember laughing, obviously just uh, out of exhaustion, thinking to myself, well, nothing to worry about, right? Because the Declaration of Independence assures us that everyone has this right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the first of the three is life. And I mockingly said to myself, you've got nothing to worry about. We're all assured of our right to life. Well, of course, that's utterly meaningless 
unless we can identify who has the absolute responsibility to come out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and rescue us. Of course, there is no such person and no such entity, and thus the right to life is meaningless. Well, one of the uh, first things that's so peculiar about this concept is that all they do is they say, well, the government, the government should pay. And so either they simply don't know that the government has no ability to create money or wealth. It can print money, but that's a way of eroding wealth, or it can move money around. But what do they think? Well, let's assume they, they, they recognize that the government doesn't have any money. Well, then they must be, in, must be meaning that what they want is for uh, taxpayers to provide the wherewithal for the government to give everybody a wage. But wait a minute. They said everybody. They said everyone regardless. And so that means that uh, for a small, relatively small percentage of the population, You'll be taking a whole lot of money away from them and then giving a small amount back, which is <laughs> their basic universal economic right. It's, it's mind-boggling. Is that what they're thinking of? Or um, are they thinking that it's just fine if the government prints more money? Maybe they don't understand that in the following scenario, nothing has been accomplished. What I mean by that is, imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and you notice on your doorstep is a duffel bag. And when you open the duffel bag, it's filled with a million dollars. million dollars in $100 bills. And there's a little tag on the side of the bag and it says, uh, this is a gift to you from your president. And you think to yourself, well, how nice it is to finally be recognized. How wonderful that my many positive contributions to the welfare of my society and of my country are finally recognized. Oh, this is wonderful. And you start thinking to yourself, what are you going to do with this million dollars? And you think, well, let's see. Uh, I'm going to buy a $600,000 house. And I'm going to uh, buy a $100,000 automobile. And I'm going to put $300,000 into a savings account. And there it is. That's how I'm going to spend the million dollars. And you're as happy as could be. Boy, this, this is going to be one of the funnest days you've had. And eventually, uh, you decide to call up your best friend. You dial up your best friend because you want to tell them about this extraordinary piece of good fortune. And uh, as your friend answers the phone, you take a breath to start saying, guess what I found on my porch this morning? When before you can get anything out of your mouth, your friend bursts in and says, you won't believe what I found on my porch. And your heart sinks and you say, what? He says, there's a duffel bag with a million dollars with a note saying uh, a gift from your president. And you say, really? And he says, yes. And what's more, I checked with my parents who live in Wichita, Kansas, they got it as well. And now your heart is really down, and you check up, dial a few more friends, everybody got it. Well, wait a moment, why does this bother you? 
I mean, after all, that's not taking away your million dollars. Why should, what sort of terrible human being are you that the fact that other people had the same good fortune as you diminishes your good fortune? No, but you see, you're exactly right. Because uh, what's going to happen when you go over to the realtor and you say to him, well, I finally decided a week or two ago I was just imagining how wonderful it would be to buy that house down on 7th Avenue. And um, I'm here to tell you that I'm able to buy it now. I want to buy it. And he says, sure, uh, we can easily arrange that. And you say, well, um, I'm going to just pay cash. I'm going to give you a check for $600,000. That was the price. He says, well, that was the price. But today, well, today I'm afraid the price is a whole lot more than that. The price is about a million two. It's about double. You say, what are you talking about? How can it have got up in a week? And he says, well, it actually went up in less than a week. It just it went up this morning. We have so many people bidding for it that uh, the owners have raised the price. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. What's, what's what? He says, look, I, I mean, I'm sure you got it as well. I got it. Everybody got the million-dollar duffel bag this morning. And so with all that money out there, a lot of people decided they wanted that house. And so the owners are holding out for uh, a million, too. They might get more. And you think to yourself, well, goodbye to that idea, but at least I can go and get the car. And you go to the showroom that had the beautiful $100,000 Aston Martin motor vehicle, and what do you discover? Well, that's right. It's no longer $100,000. It's now $200,000 and going up because there's a whole line of people out the front of the dealership, all wanting the dealer to take their money and give him the car. But he only has one on the floor, and the price is through the roof. And that, my friends, is, is just a small, woefully inadequate example of the uh, practical impact of inflation, of what really happens when the government prints money, or in this case, printed money and just distributed a whole lot of it. Um, that's exactly what happens, and, and um, reliably, <laughs> reliably, it, it hurts everybody. So uh, the idea of this uh, notion of just giving everybody a sum of money um, really doesn't make sense, even though, and I, I read to you a section where it said this is to make people um, secure enough so they don't have to listen to employers. Well, listening to an employer is precisely what distinguishes a mature adult from a child. The whole idea of somebody who has grown beyond nobody, ain't nobody telling me what to do, uh, to realizing that uh, that the, the pact between an employer and an employee is you do what I need done, and I'll tell you what that is, and in exchange, I will pay you. What, what a great arrangement, but not according to these folks. Anyways, uh, the, the key thing that I wanted to get across is that no matter where you read something, whether it's in the Washington Post or anywhere else, you really do want to run it past a, uh, an internal um, detector, something that will monitor to see whether it conforms to how the world really works. And if not, you should dismiss it as farmyard produce, certainly of no significance whatsoever. 
I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break. Back with you in just a moment. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Chris Salcedo. You, you guys live in a party that believes in imposing your will on other people through the force of government. So why would you expect your party leadership to behave any differently? You have no choice in this, and this is what you sign up for when you're a liberal. You sign up to be governed. You sign up to have your lives run for you. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, my friends. We're back, and I thank you so much for investing your time in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where you know that I am solemnly dedicated to maximize your return on investment, to make sure that your the time you spend with me will, as much as possible, be rewarded with value. And, uh, gosh, all right, well, let's talk about universities for the moment, uh, specifically Georgetown Law School. Now, we're talking about one of the top educational institutions in the country. It's a professional school, so it's postgraduate, and uh, it trains people who are lawyers. And what I'm reading from is the, uh, the Fall Winter Alumnus Magazine, the, 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 the student and alumni magazine um, of the university. And it's, it's, it's rather remarkable <clears throat> because uh, this is what is being fed to fledgling lawyers, people who are going to be running – well, I mean, look, uh, lawyers – this is something that Alexander de Tocqueville uh, observed a long time ago, a long time ago, when he realized and he said that lawyers are part of the American aristocracy. That's true. Um, I mean, look how many lawyers are among the governing. You know, these days I think of America as being divided up between the governing and the governed. And those of us on the governed side um, are, uh, I think, somewhat queasy about the growing size and power of the governing. <clears throat> but how many of the governing are lawyers? Vast numbers of them are lawyers. And uh, how about those who keep the wheels of commerce turning? Well, lawyers are needed there as well. And so um, it, it would be very helpful if we knew that all these individuals were being given an education that made them not only skillful but also wise, that confirmed not only technique and information but also conferred wisdom. Now that would be useful. But let me read you again a few things from the Georgetown Law School magazine. And um, it uh, – all right, well, this is, this is actually from a, uh, a, a speech at graduation. Um, if you ask where am I needed, if you go to those places where they are 
desperate needs. And if you lift up in your listening, your counseling, your advocacy, your love and your compassion, the suffering, the weak, the poor, you can live a very good and fulfilling life in the law. This is a, a professor giving a speech to the students. <clears throat> Continues. The New York Times reported Thursday that lawyers who make less money, including public defenders and legal service lawyers, are happier than lawyers who make more. It's hardly a surprise. You did not come to this law school to achieve mindless extravagance, but to do good and to offer a helping hand to those who need it. Remember, and this is where it gets even better, remember that it is no sacrifice to receive the same income as that received by teachers, farmers, workers on the assembly line, police officers, firefighters, and other good, decent working men and women who raise families and contribute to their communities. My goodness, the patronizing and dishonest rhetoric here. Listen, remember, it's no sacrifice to receive the same income as that received by teachers, farmers, workers on the assembly line, police officers, firefighters, and other good, decent working men and women who raise families and contribute to their communities. It's no sacrifice to receive the same income. I thought it would be interesting to find out how much money is paid by Georgetown Law School to the professor giving the speech. Uh, would you believe between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars and uh, his teaching load? No more than about eight hours a week. That's right. That's what he makes. And he's telling students, oh, it's no sacrifice. To so here are people who've gone through four years of college and now three years or four years of law school. So that's quite a lot of education. They're carrying significant student debt. And uh, he's saying, hey, it's no sacrifice to get go ahead and be a go ahead and be a uh, public service legal defender. Go ahead and. Uh, and, uh, and, and do um, uh, pro bono work because there's no sacrifice to receive the same. Well, excuse me, I think there is. What does he mean by saying there's no sacrifice? There absolutely is a sacrifice. What's he talking about? After all, teachers, farmers, workers on the assembly line, well, they're not making $250,000. No siree. No. And this man who is, is telling students, hey, there's no sacrifice in making fifty or 60000 That's not true. There absolutely is. And I, I, I mean, does nobody, does nobody in the audience put out their hands and say, excuse me, could you just repeat what you just said? Or maybe they're not listening at all. It baffles me. Um, continuing in the same Georgetown Law School magazine <clears throat> uh, for the, the end of the year, um, there's another article about parenthood. So, again, I'm reading to you excerpts from this article <clears throat> because I want you to be aware what tomorrow's lawyers are being indoctrinated with. All right? <clears throat> So they're raising the question, 
Should we allow parents to homeschool their children? Is homeschooling in the best interest of the child? Perhaps, perhaps not. Should we allow parents to spank their children? Should we allow parents to compel religious observance against the wishes of the child? Or how about against the wishes of a former spouse? They go on, <clears throat> they go on to speak about the fact that uh, there are a lot of people who speak about the importance of parental rights. And parental rights want all these questions to be determined by parents, not by the state. But these people, says the magazine, would take these questions out of the public domain by keeping the home under constitutional lock and key. The question now would no longer be one of child's welfare, which of course would be the concern of the state, but of parental entitlement. The emergence of a rights orientation has threatened to uncouple the traditional linkage of rights and responsibilities, subordinating the best interests of the child and the legitimate needs of the state to parental preferences. You get what's going on. This is something which has been happening for 50 years in America already, a gradual push towards the idea that it takes a village to raise a child, if you'll remember that piece of asinine nonsense. A move to separate children from parents, a move that will increasingly make children the business of the state and far less the business of their own parents. The article continues and says, uh, from birth, children are members of a familial community outside and beyond the nuclear family. From birth, they are members of a political community outside and beyond the family. It is only by belonging that children can learn by and for themselves where they want to belong. For this reason, courts should look skeptically at any educational scheme that seeks to restrict the right to receive information and ideas. The realm of intellect and spirit is invaded when children are forced to believe what other people believe or kept from believing what other people do not believe, even if and especially when these others are their parents or religious mentors. The, the, the state has a duty to make sure that children go to public schools the, all children are entitled to an education that is in the fullest sense public, that transports them beyond family boundaries, that provides a check on the narcissism of their guardians. It's pretty good stuff. On this basis, the courts must refuse to allow parents to opt out of state-mandated educational requirements that they consider morally objectionable. On this basis, too, the courts should not allow parents to make the public school classroom a forum for their personal religious agenda. A truly public education may well divide the child from his parents. We should be entirely forthright and unapologetic about this. The state, as educator, is no ideologically neutral actor. 
The philosophical foundations supporting a truly public education are the liberal biases of our nation's intellectual forebears. Biases in favor of a non-authoritarian approach to truth, of free argument and debate. All of this sounding very good, excepting what it really is all about is making sure that parents have fewer and fewer rights in raising their children and the state has more and more. And so, my friends, you have the privilege of paying for the obstetrician and gynecologist to deliver your child. You have the right to pay property taxes on a house big enough to accommodate your child. You have the right to pay for all the food your child needs and for the orthodontics and the ballet lessons. But you have to know that that is pretty much where your rights end. You have the right to bear all the burdens of all the costs of raising your child. However, any dreams you might have had of indelibly imprinting your beliefs and values on your child, well, that will simply not do. We don't want to have that happening at all. All right. Well, it's, it's a dismal picture, but that is what the graduating lawyers at Georgetown Law School are being taught. And it's only a matter of time before we all begin to feel the gargantuan weight of a state that feels no limits whatsoever. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris Salcedo. You, you guys live in a party that believes in imposing your will on other people through the force of government. So why would you expect your party leadership to behave any differently? You have no choice in this, and this is what you sign up for when you're a liberal. You sign up to be governed. You sign up to have your lives run for you. Chris Salcedo. Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Episode 16 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show continues with me telling you a few things. Now, that doesn't sound very interesting, does it? How about if I said, I've got three facts to share with you? Now, that got your attention a little more, didn't it? See, lists always work better than vague things. That's one of the reasons that uh, if you listen to a well-crafted speech, you will find that uh, it very often gets divided in that fashion, where the speaker might say, uh, uh, I have three points to make. And he holds up a finger and he says, point number one. And, and you really are with him. Whereas had he said, a uh, couple of things I want to share with you, and y you're, you're turning off already. There's something very specific about numbers. Lists are always popular. Uh, all over the Internet, when uh, there are attempts to seduce your eyeballs and uh, distract you from the work you're supposed to be doing or from the research that you needed to do and to make you go wandering after one piece of the Internet or the other, uh, you'll always see 25 of the most uh, embarrassing photographs ever taken or 
15 of it, and it's always like that. It's, it's always numbers, right? Well, uh, three is uh, a fairly good number. If you're, if you're giving a speech and you want to make a certain number of points, it's, it's not a bad idea. Three is a pretty good number. Um, beginning, introduction, ending, people are always told, you know, letters uh, should be divided into three in that fashion. So three is not bad. But four, well, four is also uh, very good. As a matter of fact, in certain ways, four is superior because uh, when you break things down to their most elemental components, you usually end up with four. Um, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, all matter is made up of what? Well, neutrons, protons, electrons, and energy. Everything. Everything. Everything is made up of protons, neutrons, electrons, and energy, those four things. Or how about if you need to uh, position an object, a point on the space-time continuum? Well, you've got the x-axis, the y-axis, the z-axis, and then you've got time. And so you've got four there as well. And so it's for that reason that I always tell folks that uh, there are four things any young man needs to do in order to get onto the escalator of success. Right? You're, you're 14, 15, 16 years old. I can tell you four things that'll guarantee you a successful life. Number one, finish school. Number two, get a job and keep it. Number three, deliver more than you asked for. That's one of the ways of keeping that job in item number three. So number one, finish school. Number two, get a job and keep it. Number three, deliver more than is asked for. Number four, get married and stay married. Because indeed, poverty in America is not a racial matter. And people think it is, but they're wrong. People think, oh, it's, it's you know, poverty is, African Americans are poor. It's missing the point. I'll tell you who's poor in America, single males. Unmarried men are the poorest people in America. And any groups that have a lot of single men are going to be poor. They're also going to be uh, impacted by violence because single men inflict the overwhelming majority of violence in society. And so the shattering of marriage, which was done by the welfare program from Daniel Patrick Moynihan onwards, shattered families created the phenomenon of vast numbers of single males and uh, threw poverty at us. That really did set up an, a tremendous poverty problem. It was awful. So that's why I say get married and stay married is item number four. And, uh, and those four things are really, really significant. I mean, you just think about Think about all those people who, uh, uh, who are living really hopeless lives that are going absolutely nowhere. 
Number one, they didn't finish school. Number two, they've never kept a job, not even got a job. Number three, they've never delivered more than asked because they never asked for anything. And number four, they certainly have never got married. Let's say that uh, you're not a 16-year-old now, but uh, you are running your, your business. And when I say running your business, uh, I'm always going to advocate treating your job as if it were a business. And so uh, instead of thinking of yourself as being an employee of the Acme Ball Bearing Company, you should be thinking of yourself as being in the business of selling your time and your skills in the manufacture of ball bearings. And right now you have one customer, namely the Acme Ball Bearing Company. Not your employer, they're your customer. You're in business for yourself. You're, you, Inc., or me, Inc., if it's you speaking, me, Incorporated. And you're a board of directors. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe even your kids. Maybe it's friends, relatives. But you put together a, a, a team of, of people that can work with you and help advise you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And so there you are. How, how should you divide your time? Well, you should be trying to do four things again. Here is the four again. Number one, you should be working at getting rich. It's the first step. And um, is that a, a selfish thing? Is, is that a, a bad thing? No, not at all. Not at all. Because if you are working at getting rich, the only way you're able to do that is by trying to please as many other people as you possibly can. And so I want everybody around me to be trying to get rich because that means they're going to be trying to figure out ways of pleasing me. So a quarter of your time and energy should go to working at getting rich. Another quarter should go to relationships with friends and family. A third quarter should go to reading nonfiction books and, and, and growing yourself. And the fourth quarter should be in developing your relationship with God, your spiritual growth, because um, that also is important. Maintaining a, a healthy spirit, a healthy soul, just as important as maintaining a healthy body. Um, I, uh, I noticed something very interesting just recently, an observation that, uh, that Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs of Apple computers, um, became a far, far more effective manager after he reconciled with a daughter whose uh, relationship he denied whose paternity denied. So for a number of years, when, when he was at his worst, when things were not going well, when John Scully came into to Apple, when, when, when Steve Jobs just wasn't doing well, there was a time when he was utterly alienated from his own daughter. But then, at a certain point, he went and put that relationship right, and he began to dote on her, and he became a far better manager. When I say devote a quarter of your time to spiritual matters, spiritual growth, relationship with God, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Because our souls get 
they get damaged by little things, seemingly little things. And as the soul gets damaged and the soul gets chipped here and scratched there, it makes you less effective as a person. And so another way of looking at spiritual development is buffing out those, those scratches, uh, getting rid of those dents, basically taking care of repairing the soul. And those are the things that, uh, that, that really do well for each and every one of us. So that's why I say dividing our time into four. Working at getting rich, that's certainly a quarter of my work of what I do. Secondly, I've got to devote a quarter of my time to relationships with friends and family. A third, to improving my own abilities. And that's only from nonfiction books. Please don't kid yourself that it's from watching YouTube or television. It isn't. It's from reading. And uh, finally, relationship with uh, spiritual matters. That, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is as far as we can go in this, the 16th episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website is youneedarabbi.com. That's right, www.youneedarabbi.com. Check out my store. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the free weekly email Thought Tools. And uh, also uh, shoot me an email. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, until we're together with the next podcast next week, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze Radio Network.